In the book of Matthew, chapter number 13, Jesus is speaking, and in verse 24, let me begin there. The Bible says that he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good field, excuse me, good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. How many of you have heard a message on the parable of what we used to call the wheat and the tares? Would you raise your hand? Okay, so that's about half of the room in here before. Um, you've heard it before. Um, I don't know that I've ever preached it. I don't think that I have. I've been preaching a lot, but I don't think I've ever preached this passage that I can remember. Um, Jesus is going to give the interpretation of the parable before we get out of here tonight. He's going to tell you exactly what the parable means. Jesus says in this very chapter, a little bit later, I think around verse 35, somewhere around there, he actually tells the disciples why he wants to speak to them in parables. Let me give you this. Jesus said, I speak in parables in order that those who have spiritual eyes and ears to see and hear, they'll get it, but it will be veiled from those who don't have spiritual ears, spiritual eyes. Jesus actually said that. The nature of a parable is this, that it takes something familiar and it illustrates to us in a teaching fashion something that is less familiar or unfamiliar. So Jesus wanted to teach them something that they weren't familiar with, but he wanted to make it easy on them. But here's the principle. He said, it is only those who really want to press in to know the deeper components of the kingdom that will grasp what he's trying to teach us from the parables. People that are lazy in their spiritual walk, they don't like parables. They just want to say, Lord, tell us what you mean. But Jesus wants to bring the desire out of us to know some of the deeper things in the kingdom. And he used at least 10 parables in his ministry to speak to us, his original audience and us, about things that pertain to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is multifaceted. It is not simple. It is glorious. It is deep. It is profound. It has many uh, different views that you can look at and you can see the same thing in a different nuance. And Jesus wants our hearts to be panting and thirsting after, fu uh, after fully embracing what it means to be in the kingdom. What is this kingdom about? What, what, what does it mean for us to be citizens of the kingdom? Who is he as our king? And he's going to reveal so much of that especially in Matthew 13, through parables, and we've got one of them here today. And do you know what he wants to tell you and I about in this? He wants to tell us that it has, it has been clear from the beginning that in the course of humanity and history, there will be good and evil people always in the world living together. Always. It is a promise that lasts, is going to last from the first family where murder was committed, brother against brother, all the way to the end of the age. There will always be 
good and evil living together. Now, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to resist it. We're not supposed to fight against it. We're not supposed to speak out. We're not supposed to advance biblical morality. We're to do all of those things. But the anxiety that comes when we're looking at a world that is cascading away from God, that is, it is blaspheming Jesus at every turn, even to the extent, and I'm going to go ahead and talk about the elephant in the room, most of us that have been in church for a long time have come across people that sang the same songs as us, said amen to the same verses as us, showed up at the same service times of us as us, but then turned out to be like the devil to us. I wish that wasn't true, but it is. Why? Because if there's good and bad people out in the world from shore to shore, eventually you're going to have to recognize some of those good people are going to be in the church, hallelujah, but some of the bad ones are too. So let's look at this text here tonight and let's see what we can learn. First of all, let's just go through the parable. Jesus is going to reveal a troubling reality. Let's go back to the parable about the field owner, his crops, his sowing of seed, and what happens to him. First of all, we're just going to talk about sowing the seed. Let's just keep it agricultural for a minute. There's this pure planting in verse number 24. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to what? To a man who sowed good seed in his field, okay? Just very simply here, we're not going to unpack it yet. Jesus is giving an illustration about a man who owned a field and his job was to plant good seed. Why? Because he wanted to eventually, at the right season, harvest a healthy, good, robust harvest. So what did he do? He took his very best seed and he put it into the field that he owned. It was his field. It was his seed. It would be his harvest. And so he went about doing that. But watch this. There's not only his pure planting, but then Jesus introduces the second part in the parable. There's what I call problematic planting. While his men, that's his employees, his workers, his servants, while they were sleeping, the man's enemy came and sowed weeds. Now let's just pause there. So this man who is obviously he's working in a rural setting, this is ancient Probably in the setting where Jesus was speaking, everybody could picture it. Everybody understood the agricultural reference. They knew about planting good seed in a field. But they also knew that part of um, sometimes a spiteful, vengeful act would be for a neighboring farmer in order to do some damage to the good landowner. They would come and they would sow bad seed among the good seed. They would witness and watch while the man was tilling up his field, getting it prepared. They would see that he had put his good seed in the ground. And that night, while the man and all of his employees were doing what they naturally do at night, which is to go to sleep, the enemy, either by himself or with his helpers, would come and exactly where the good seed was sown, they would throw bad seed. That's the precise planting. Look at it in verse 25. They sowed it among the wheat. They didn't plant a separate field full of bad weeds. They sowed it right there. The whole purpose was to destroy the man's harvest, to ruin his crops, to come against him in an act of sabotage. That's what his enemy did. And the way he did it was to go in under the cloak of darkness while he couldn't be seen, and he would take what he knew was bad seed. Literally, it's probably... It was a, uh, a plant called bearded darnel. It, is, um, it just looks so much like wheat, and it's not able to be distinguished from wheat stalks until much later in the growing process. And so the wicked man comes in, and he plants bad seed right in the place where the good farm man, the good farm uh, owner, planted the good seed. Why? 
Well, look, it was poisonous planting. Verse 26, here we go further into the parable. When the plants came up and bore grain, the weeds then appeared also. Do we have anybody in here that was either a farmer, lived on a farm, or knows a lot about agriculture? Good, I hope there's only two of you, so y'all don't call my bluff. I'm a suburbanite, but I'm going to pretend I know what I'm talking about here. So here we go. When the the wheat began to grow, ultimately it comes up in a leafy plant, but eventually it starts bearing the grain, the little stalks, the heads. You've seen wheat stalks. They bow down. They get heavy with grain. Well, what was going on is during the growing process, the wheat grows up and appears almost exactly like the poisonous weeds. So they're growing up together, and what's happening during that time also is they're intertwining their roots if they're planted close together. And so as the harvest is, or excuse me, as the crops are beginning to grow, uh, to to the naked eye, one would not see any difference between the good and the bad. They're there together, but then all of a sudden, things are about to shift. Why do I want to say this? Well, this is the troubling reality that Jesus is going to use to describe what he and the devil does in this world. Jesus is going to take this agricultural parable and he's going to teach us a kingdom lesson here that he wants us to understand and accept in order that we might be the wiser concerning the ways of the Lord and the ways of Satan. So let's go a little bit further in here. Jesus is now going to detail for us a a confusing consequence to what has been happening. You see, he's still in the parable and the servants are now at that stage in the growth of the crops where they're starting to see, hey, we've got bad seed that is bringing forth weeds or tares in the old King James. So let's look at this in verses 27 through 30. First of all, in verse 27, I like this. Look at the doubts of the servants. The servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? Now, let let me give you just a little spoiler alert. Um, Jesus is going to unpack this parable. He's going to tell us exactly what each thing stands for. But I think most of you are probably aware that, that the good landowner is Jesus. The enemy is Satan, the evil one. The good seed, earlier we found out in Matthew 13 that Jesus used a a different framework for seed. He used seed as the word of God. That's not what it represents here. The good seed actually represents children of God, Christians, you, if you happen to be saved in the room tonight. The bad seed are the intentionally planted children of darkness. Let me get very politically incorrect here, because I know we live in a world that loves everybody to come together in a big kumbaya hug, and we're all the children of God, aren't we? No, we are not all the children of God. You you have to be born twice to become a children of God. You're born once, and you stay born once, then you die as a a child of darkness, That is the reality of Scripture. We're not all good. We're not all children of God. We didn't all start off with great hearts. That is simply not true. There's this little theological issue called depravity that the Bible stipulates that we're actually born sinners. Come on, y'all got to get with me tonight, man. Y'all don't fall asleep on me. Y'all look at me. How dare you say such things? Well, have you ever raised a two-year-old? Did you have to teach the two-year-old how to be a booger? No. He knows it or she knows it naturally defiance selfishness they just come nobody has to train a child how to be selfish and 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 all of those things it's just in us and so as we grow older we become active participants this is apart from the gospel active participants 
with the nature that we own. So as a child of God, we are actively participating within the nature of a child of God under glory for Jesus, fruit for the kingdom, living our lives that are no longer our own, but we are actively living for Jesus. Well, the children of darkness, the children of the devil is an expression that Jesus used. The children of the devil are doing the same thing. They are actively participating in the kingdom of darkness to advance it. And here's the thing, we are butted up right next to each other. Sometimes the children of God and the children of darkness are in the same house. Sometimes they're in the same office building. Some of you act like you ain't ever worked with one of those people before, amen? I used to be that guy, so I know. I used to be the guy that was, you know, like, oh, keep Jeff away from us. That was me before my conversion. Sometimes they're, they're in our schools. Uh, sometimes they're in our, our communities, our neighborhoods. Psst. Sometimes they're in our churches. That's just the way it works. And so Jesus is giving this parable, and notice, first of all, what the default response of the servants is. They're doubting the master. They're looking at the field. They know the nature of their master is good. He's benevolent. He's kind. He's wise. He would never plant bad seed, but we've got bad seed sprouting up into, into um, bad plants that are going to ruin the crop. And so their first response is, Master, what'd you do wrong? Master, you've obviously made a mistake. Now, I'll just get, get real with you here because sometimes we don't like to admit that we're a little overly pious. We, would, we like to pretend like we, we would never, ever have to doubt or, or wonder what God's up to. We just love everything he does. Well, you're not journeying very deep with him if you have always loved everything that he does. Because he tests us, he stretches us, he makes us wait, he sometimes acts in ways that are higher than our ways, with thoughts that are higher than our thoughts, and sometimes we, we do, we find ourselves here, we're, we're very reverent, so we rarely express it this way, we, we sometimes inwardly think of, what are you doing? Especially when evil is abounding in the world. And the chaos that is just hitting us from so many angles. I don't think it's an entirely unrighteous thing to, to get honest before the Lord. I mean, he knows that the psalmist, there are inspired psalms in our Bible where the theme is, what are you doing, Lord? When will you move? Why won't you say something? Some of the minor prophets would call out to God and they would say, how long, O Lord, how long? And so the people of God have always wrestled with this issue of why injustice and evil, and we like to say, why do bad things happen to good people, and those kind of, those kind of thoughts. And, and oftentimes, we make the mistake that the servants did in the parable. that They, they think the master is doing something wrong. We, we've done that before. Something terrible hits your life. There is the propensity to say, well, if God's in control, you get very theological in those moments. If God's sovereign and God's in control and God loves me, then why did the sovereign God who's in control and loves me allow this to find me? And, and we can come up with that moment, that season of doubt. That's pictured here in what the servants are doing. They're saying, we know who you are, but we can't reconcile that with what we see happening here in your field. Well, go a little further. Look at what the declaration is to the servants. I love this. He said to them, an enemy has done this. End of discussion. An enemy has done this. 
The, the master is saying to the servants, this isn't me. I didn't do this. An enemy did this, and it could be unpacked to say, while you were asleep. And so under the cover of darkness, and that's the way the enemy loves to work. The, the, the medieval, medieval caricature of, of the devil as, you know, the, the, the red-horned imp with a pitchfork. He's got tights on and everything. It's really creepy, and he's got a tail with a thing. That, that, that is not how the devil approaches you. You'd know who he was if he did that. You'd recognize his activity. You'd be ready to fight. No, what does he want to do? He wants to come under the cloak of darkness. He wants to catch you unawares. He doesn't want to be noticed. The, the last thing the enemy wants us to do is to notice his activity. He loves, and it even says it there earlier in the parable, it says that he, he sewed it under the cloak of darkness and then he left. He went away. And so he got everything rolling. He made preparation to sabotage this man's field. And then when they asked the landowner, hey, why did you do this or have you done this? I love the response. The landowner says, it's not me. It's not me. Now listen, I, I'm not going to be the guy who stands up in the pulpit on a Sunday night and gives you a, a, you know, a 20-minute answer that reconciles the sovereignty of God and how that uh, is juxtaposed against the, the reality of evil in the world. You know, there's a reason you're not God and I'm not God. God's ways, again, are immeasurably higher than ours. But here's the key co core component. We have to have our utmost confidence in the fact that he's good. He's good. The sovereign God of heaven who can eliminate bad things or allow bad things, whether he eliminates them or allows them, our confidence, our bedrock theological no holds barred confidence is that this God whose ways are higher than mine is essentially good and can do no wrong. And so when bad strikes, and man, we could, we could just kind of shut things down, go out in the lobby and each take probably 30 minutes to tell of just tragic things that have touched our lives or our families' lives. And listen, I've been there. I know what I'm talking about. And in the weaker moments, we, we might say, God, why couldn't you have just... But I want you to know something. The Lord does not do evil. And when these things find us, we have to move past the fact that the sovereign God of heaven could have but did not stop it. We have to say, I don't understand it, but I do understand that you're good. I believe it. I believe that you're good, God. And then when we come to that confidence, we say, then it was the enemy. An enemy has done this. We have to recognize that when evil finds our lives, that the source of all evil is never the Lord. Why he does not stop it, we will understand perfectly one nanosecond after we slip into glory. But until then, we have a lot of unanswered questions, but the one question that has been answered is that he's good and he loves you and you will gain wisdom and understanding at some point along the spectrum if you continue to follow him. So the declaration of the servants is, I didn't do this, an enemy did this, further down into verse 28. Look at the desire of the servants. So I like this. Then do you want us to go and gather them? The servants are like, hey, we'll just go after this thing. We'll handle this. It reminds me of James and John when they moved into the Samaritan village that didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus. And James and John are like, would you like us to call down coals of fire on the village and incinerate them? I mean, it's kind of the same spirit. We get our zeal. 
You know, we're going to take care of things. We're going to handle things. And, and we're going to make something happen here. Master, we'll take care of this. That enemy's not going to get, we'll show him. We'll reverse the curse. We'll, we'll take matters into our own hands and we will make your field good again. And that's, that's their desire. I think it was noble, but it wasn't wise. And the master of the field is about to tell them why they can't do that. So look in verse 29. They get denied. The servants are denied. He answers again. This is a kind of a no-nonsense master. He says, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Now, again, I'm going to fake like I know what I'm talking about here. So just give me some grace. So when these two plants are planted next to each other, and as the growing season happens, they look very similar as we've already established. And then when the grain starts budding, the darnel, the, the bearded darnel, which is more than likely what this weed was, it produces a different stalk and it stands more upright. The true wheat bows and the 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 darnel kind of stands upright and it's a discolored kind of thing it's it's not a polite phrase but the rabbis used to call this reality they would call it bastard wheat that it was illegitimate wheat and so they were so close to looking the same that when they grew up now everybody knows which is which and so these guys want to go in there and they want to yank them up but this is what the master of the field says he says actually you can't do that because a couple of different things one some of the plants still look like the other plants by the way some of the wheat true good wheat might be mistakenly yanked up because you think it's bad weeds and then also the reality that I, I, I touched on earlier that when they are uh, growing in close proximity to each other they're they're um roots can intertwine and so you pull up the bad and it's going to deroot the good and so potentially in trying to handle the situation prematurely the landowner the master recognizes no if we move it this thing prematurely it's actually going to cause some damage to true wheat and i need all of that true wheat i planted the true wheat that wheat belongs to me. I am not going to forfeit any of that just because my enemy has planted the weeds. So keep all of this in mind because he's really not teaching us about farming, but he is using a very familiar thing to his audience to kind of unpack something that's not as familiar. Now, look at the duty of the servants in verse 30. This is the instruction. He denies them their desire to go in the field. Watch this. So the landowner says this, let them both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell my reapers, gather the weeds first, bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Now, I've already kind of given you the spoiler on this thing. That wheat represents the children of God. The landowner is Jesus. The, the, the weeds, the tares, represents people that belong to the enemy whom he has planted in proximity to the children of God. And it's the, the field is the entire globe. And by the way, we'll see that played out even in local churches. We, though we are collectively, we are to be a body of saints, we, we, we don't police that. We don't really know if everybody's saved or not until we get a little further down into harvest time and the fruit starts appearing. And so this is what Jesus is describing. But now you go further down into 
the passage of scripture Jesus gives another parable about the mustard seed and then his disciples are really really intrigued by this um, parable about the wheat and the tares because when you get down to verse number 36 well matter of fact let me just read it Matthew 13 36 then it says that Jesus left the crowds and he went into the house and his disciples came to him saying explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field let me just give a little commentary on this when we are hitting stumbling blocks when we hit roadblocks or walls or confusing moments or things we don't understand can I just encourage you pastorally here please don't fake it don't don't pretend like you got all of this there is something glorious about the priesthood of the believers where we don't have to wait for the pastor to explain it or the teacher to explain it or our favorite podcaster to help us out with this thing get into the presence of the master and say i need some help understanding what it is that you're saying what it is that you're doing do you know that that delights the lord we have we have this tendency because maybe a, a misconception of who god is that, that we don't think we can question anything, that we don't think we can ask any questions. If you study the Gospels, matter of fact, just study the Word, some of the greatest kingdom realities are brought into understanding to people because they asked. It's this, it's this thing that keeps coming back to me during this kingdom series, this series on the radical return, that some of the choicest treasures in the kingdom are only going to be given to those who press in intensely to find them. And when Jesus gave us the principle of never casting our pearls before the swine, you and I need to remember that he practiced that principle too. He's not going to give his most precious pearls to people that will treat them like pigs and trample them underfoot. But Jesus reserves the secret of the Lord is with those that fear him. And so that when, and, and listen, does he do anything except he reveals it to his prophets? And so we press in, we say, Lord, I don't get it. I like to tell the Lord regularly, Lord, you know who I am? I'm like Elmer Fudd. I'm not impressive. I'm not, I'm not you know, uh, stellar. I, I, when I get into the presence of God sometimes, and it's not a sense of shame or condemnation, I just know that he is omnisciently wise and gloriously good, and I'm Elmer Fudd. And so I just say, hey, Lord, it's Elmer Fudd time. I don't know what you're doing. I don't understand this. And I need the spirit of wisdom and revelation to unlock my mind so I can get what you're trying to give me. Listen, if, if we're ever going to be able to operate deeply in the prophetic, if we're ever going to release right now rhema words and help people build up the body of Christ, if we're ever going to be able to steward that process, it's going to be done through those who are not casual about approaching the Lord with it. But you're intense, you're hungry. How many of you believe that he's a God that likes to talk? Yes. He's a God who likes to talk. Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. He didn't just say, my sheep will understand the book I inspired. He said, my sheep will know my voice. He's a speaking, communicative God. But sometimes we don't hear him because we're not asking the questions. We just assume, well, if he's got something to say, he'll say it. Friends, that's not like any other relationship that is prospering in our lives. We don't treat anybody else like that. I hope you don't. Husbands? Well, she knows I love her. You might want to tell her. You might want to communicate it. Could be for the wives too. And sometimes, friends, depth of relationship comes by asking questions and receiving answers. And so they got the Lord alone and they said, we've been waiting all day. Can you, can you back up a little bit and explain to us about that whole thing about the wheat and the weeds? 
So let me, let me give you what we can acknowledge here. Now Jesus unpacks it. I've already given you the, uh, I've spoiled it a little bit for you, but let me give you this right here. Um, Jesus says this, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. He says in the parable, I'm the guy who owns the farm. I'm the guy who always plants the good seed. The field is the world. It's planet, planet earth. And he says, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. Now, I want you to think about this. Jesus is testifying here that the sovereign God of heaven has good children, his children, saved, redeemed, justified, people of faith, however you want to call it, but those who have come to his son through faith, and they are planted by God's sovereign choosing of timing, location, generation, all of that. God chose to plant you, a good child of his, right where you find yourself planted right now. He did it because he's good. He did it because he's wise. It's not an accident. You are who you are by his grace. You are where you are by his grace. And none of it was arbitrary that he actually has a plan for releasing you into the kingdom in this generation, in this location, at this time, being the person that he's made you to be. And he did it all on purpose. Now, as, as the text goes further, we find something that we've got to own that is, that is difficult. The weeds, Jesus says, are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, I, I want us to grasp this, okay? This is important for all of us. Um, I understand that we all recognize that there's good and evil in the world. And I, I believe that even non-believers recognize that too. But let me tell you what distinguishes the believer from the non-believer when it comes to this issue of good and evil being in the world. We actually believe in the, in, in, in the source of both good and evil. We believe good proceeds from a benevolent, kind, glorious, eternal God. And we believe evil finds its source in a fallen angel whose original name was Lucifer, who is now called the accuser of the brethren, Satan. He is Satan, and he is real. Now, I know that we know this. I know that our theology is good. But I want you to just, just give me a second here. That Satan, when he was evicted from heaven for desiring God's glory for his own self, he took a third of the angels. We don't know the exact number, but we do know that there was a third of the created holy angels that rebelled with Satan. And we are commonly referring to those now as demons. They are evil. They do the will of their master who is Satan. They come to steal, kill, and destroy. They're going to wake up tomorrow, and they're going to steal, kill, and destroy. The day after that, steal, kill, and destroy. That's their agenda. They want to resist and exterminate the glory of God wherever they see it. And the primary location where the glory of God is revealed is not, uh, uh, in spite of popular belief, is not just in nature, but the actual glory of God is primarily revealed through the church, through the Christian and when we come together in unity and we come together in mission, we come together in purpose, greater glory is revealed. And so Satan is the evil one and he hates that. So what does he do? He literally is the owner of every unregenerate human being on the planet. He's their daddy. He is their father. Every person outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ and outside of the covenant of the blood of Jesus is a child of the devil. Mention that in the break room tomorrow at work and see how it goes over. 
It's just not popular, but it is true. And so these people, even in their ignorance, I don't think that there's an active, aware uh, cooperation with Satan, my daddy. I don't think that's the way most, the vast majority of these people operate. They're just living their lives, but they're under the sway of every established order that Satan has set up over the history of humanity. The spirit of the age. He knows how to provoke flesh in every culture, in every generation. Listen, I'm not giving him glory, but I'm going to tell you the facts. Satan and his demons have been studying humanity for all of human history. They know how to push our buttons. They know how to get us to fall. They know how to get us to succumb to temptation. They know how to individually provoke us in our weaknesses. But we don't think about that. And so we crack open the door to the occult in our lives all the time and don't bat an eye at it. We welcome streams of influence into our life that are actually sourced in the enemy. Ideas, entertainment, literature, all of that stuff. And then, of course, you know, the American dream, which looks good to the rest of the world, but I'm going to tell you something. As you follow Jesus, at some point, you're going to have to renounce the American dream and start saying, I, I'm not going to dream of, the, of a house and retirement and land and cars and money and beauty and all of that. Forget all of that. That, 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 that will look atrocious to you if you'll just get caught up in the glory of the one sitting on the throne. You won't care about that stuff. But listen, the American dream is sourced in the heart of the enemy. Listen, when you're watching television, I sound like a uh, hard shell fundamentalist Baptist here, but let me just, let me channel that old self here for a moment as a joke. The, the reality is, is if, if, you, if you just watch what's coming through the television, if you have a television in your home, and just take an objective look, most of it is highly seductive. Most of it in, in, in comedy and entertainment takes cheap shots at what God's kingdom values. And if you think that Christians are being, you know, beautifully portrayed through the culture and the entertainment, you've got your head in the sand. Why am I saying all this? Because it's active and it's real and it's not just some evil out there. It is actual. Jesus is teaching us here that the, the reality is Satan has his crew. And he's intentionally positioned them, sewn them in close proximity to Christians. I mean, I'm actually feeling like a weight of warning on this. I feel like, let me, let me just release this word that wasn't in the notes, but it's coming right now. I feel like the enemy is setting up some of you single people in here by planting some of his people in your life at close proximity that he can provoke your impatience in finding a mate so he can attach you, good seed, to them, bad seed. And impatience fuels that process. And then we get real spiritual. We think, well, I know they're kind of bad seed, but I'm a Christian and greater is me, a greater is he that is in me than the one that's in the world. I'm going to date them to save them. We all know the track record on that, right? The one who gave the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. Now, we either believe what Jesus says or we don't. Again, if that doesn't mean what it means, what does it mean? 
friends, think about that. In the world, your life, let's, just, let's, let's take it from a global concept down to your life. In your life, the enemy has planted people. And those people, his, his intention to work through them is to undermine all of God's glory in your life. And you may not be able to do anything about their presence. You may be working in the cubicle next to them. It may be somebody in your family. And you can't just, you know, run for the hill, uh, hills screaming like a stark raving lunatic, oh, no, the evil people are here. You can't do that. Nor can we do what has been done by, under the name of Christianity in centuries gone by, which is to destroy the evil people. So what do we do? Well, let's just get some wisdom on this as, as we come to, come to the close. Down at the middle of verse number 39, we must proclaim uh, what is coming. Look at what Jesus does. Jesus gets um, all prophetic on us here. Here he says, now, the harvest is the close of this age, and the reapers are the angels. And just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of this age. Now, he's speaking of things that haven't happened yet. So my radar goes off. He's telling me stuff about the future. He says, the Son of Man will send his angels, Revelation chapter 14, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace and in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there is a pretty potent movement among evangelical American Christians that is moving towards kind of a, um, not kind of, they're moving towards a, a view of all-inclusive salvation for everybody. Nobody gets judged. Nobody goes to hell. It's coming, quite frankly, through a lot of the music. It is. It's very subtle. Again, the enemy wants to plant his people close to us. And so, whereas you and I would recognize that he's a good, good father, there is a genre within American Christianity that is taking that, both, that good thought, both musically and sermonically, and they're, uh, they're extending it and bloating it and, and, and morphing it into that God is such a good father that it's inconsistent with him to ever judge anybody. I just read an article uh, last, two weeks ago, right before Thanksgiving, and it was about two worship leaders that uh, were, as a husband and wife, were in a mega church mega church and as they began to grow in this commitment to saying god is so good he'd never do this he'd never do this he'd never do this and no judgment no hell no real devil it just kind of snowballed on them to where the article was about this this was the headline it was on i think drudge report or cnn or something it said this christian worship leaders now atheists and the whole article was about how over about a two-year time period, she went from being a worship leader and a pastor at a mega church along with her husband to deciding that God would never punish anybody bad. And if that's not true, how can we believe anything about the Bible? How can we believe anything about God? None of it's true. And they were pastors. I said, well, Jeff, that's kind of extreme. It is now, but what will it be in five years? If we aren't aware of this reality, now I'm, I'm not in the mood to make you paranoid, 
But good night alive, are we, does the Bible still say we're to be vigilant and sober? Because our adversary, the devil, like a roaring lion, is walking about seeking whom he may devour? Is that still in the book? Okay, okay, just making sure. Then I think we're on good ground here. Jesus says something that so encourages me. He says, at the end of this age is the time of the final harvest. And the reapers are angels. I don't have time to get into it. You can just go back of your Bible, start Revelation 14, read the rest of it. And, and you're going to see this actually comes to pass where the reaping angels come with their sickles and they bring in the harvest of humanity. It's literally going to happen. It's not imaginary language. You say, well, Jeff, how's that going to work? I don't know the science of it. I just know that God says it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And what these angels are going to do is they're going to separate the children of God from the children of the devil. And Jesus is very, very clear here. At the close of the age, all causes of sin, all lawbreakers will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, but I'm going to tell you something. We've got to come to the place in the church where we are not so grace-based that we feel like God's doing something wrong by bringing and executing final judgment on those that die in their rebellion against him. We've got to recognize that he's actually glorified in his wrath at the end of the age. Part of the glory of God is that he will be glorified in his wrath for punishing all of those who made a final and absolute decision to say no to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You say, well, Jeff, why is it taking so long? Well, listen, here's why it's taking so long. This is the point that I'm trying to get to. It is appointed at the end of the age. It's going to happen. There's going to be a division of humanity. It won't be black and white and Asian and Hispanic. It's going to be saved, unsaved. It's going to be redeemed, lost. It's going to be justified, condemned. That's the way it ends. And it all boils down to each individual person's decision about who Jesus Christ is and how they release themselves to the truth of who he is and what his message was. And at the end... The Bible says that the cosmos will be finally and fully rid of all sin. It's going to be gone. The Bible speaks of Satan, the beast, the, uh, the false prophet, all being thrown in the lake of fire. Scripture tells us that the day is coming where the God of heaven, glorious and mighty, is going to say, I have given all the grace I will give. Now is the time. So when we're thinking, why does evil continue? Why are bad things happening? Why doesn't God just come and wipe all of this out? Well, let me just give you this. Maybe this will help you. What if somebody was praying that 10 years before you got saved and God answered it? Do you see? The reason why he's allowing it to happen is because he's a gracious, merciful, compassionate God, and he is providing opportunity for the church to get the gospel to all nations so they here have a chance to believe. And until then, Jesus is teaching us, we must expect the good in the world and the bad of the world, and they are smacked right up on each other. It'll touch your life. It'll touch my life. But hallelujah, at the end of the age, God says this far, no more. And he deals with it. Friends, I don't even have a vocabulary to explain to describe what I think that might be like. Um, my personal belief is it will be better than Eden. 
that the reworked, the reestablished, the reconfigured heavens and earth where the glory of God will be the light of it. And the church will be pristine without spot, blemish, wrinkle, no more sin, no more taint. Oh, man, the thing I'm looking forward to most is not your sin being dealt with. It's my sin being gone. Just to where I don't struggle with the flesh anymore. I don't say things or do things or think things that are inconsistent. I cannot wait for the day and to be able to worship him, not by faith anymore, but in his very presence with the veil of flesh being taken away and no longer worshiping through a glass darkly, through a mirror dimly. But as we sang tonight, as Kristen, worship team, y'all come on up. As Kristen was singing that over and over again, just we're going to see him face to face. The Bible says when we see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. It is a radically different reality than anything we have ever approached before. We we can't bear to think any longer, yeah, it's going to be a slight upgrade over what we've got now. Are you kidding me? It's going to be amazing. And so in verse 43, Jesus gives us this, and then we're done. We have to wait for the kingdom climax. He's not done yet. He's still doing what he's always done he's still working to save redeem to make his name famous on the earth to give every generation of people of every tribe and tongue every nation giving them an opportunity to say yes to his glorious son who's going to sit and rule and reign on planet earth again and then the bible says the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father that's when it's going to happen the most important word in that verse is then And it means not until then. And so the practical counsel that I'm going to leave you with tonight is this, that God's people and Satan's people have always coexisted. That's going to be the ongoing reality until the end of the age. You have to accept that fact. And until the end of the age, there will continue to be much evil. I hate to break it to you. It's going to get worse. It's going to get radically worse. That's not me being a prophet of doom. That's me being a student of the scriptures. It's going to get worse. Because of the dual existence of God's people and Satan's people in the world, we're also going to be able to find that the, there's going to be potential for God's people and Satan's people to actually be in the visible church. Listen, you're going to go to church with some people that aren't God's. That's why you can't leave when you encounter hypocrisy at a church. I mean, listen, that is a damnable excuse for people to walk away from God's people because one among the flock acted like the devil. He or she probably belonged to the devil. And God, Jesus told us at the beginning, they're always going to be there. So when we get crushed by somebody that we thought was a Christian, when we get betrayed, when we get led wrong, maybe we've been abused by somebody that represented God, we don't walk away from the true because the devil planted a counterfeit in the midst of it. If all the people who saw the counterfeits would stay in the church and resist the counterfeits, we'd be a much more glorious people on earth. But what they do is they leave. Just them and Jesus and their favorite podcast preacher, and they don't have to risk it with anybody. It's not the will of the Father. And guys, just very, very quickly, I am, I'm done, I'll prove it. (laughs) That's the only way I get to finish. Um... Jesus wants you and me to leave the evaluating and judging and dealing with the sinners. Leave that to him. 
you and me, we're going to love people. We're going to tell them the truth. We're going to be kind. We're not going to be coddling. We're not going to be condescending. We're not going to be patronizing. But we're going to love them even when they're our enemies because that's what our master told us to do. And we're not going to go around checking who's wheat and who's weed. That didn't sound right, but... We're not going to go around being the fruit inspectors. We're not qualified for that. You can't be picking apart people and worshiping Jesus at the same time. So turn in your badge. Quit patrolling the streets of Christian town. It's not an assignment that you or I have been given. You say, well, Jeff, what about the evil? Well, what did he just say? We need to be aware of why it's there, how it got there. We need to recognize there's an agenda of the enemy to get some of that in us and on us and to bring defeat to our lives through that. But listen, at the end of the age, it will be dealt with. Until then, we're walking this thing out by faith. And we're trusting that he's good. He's good. He's good. I want you to stand to your feet tonight.